Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And once again, it is shout out time. Thank you so much to Andrea for joining our growing Patreon family and supporting the content we make and the outreach we do. Yeah, thank you. This will be our last full episode of 2021, friends. In January, we'll be taking our customary hiatus to get some holiday break time and to get a head start on new content for you in the new year. But the month won't be completely bleak. We've got a couple bonus nuggets in mind for you, so stay tuned. Yeah, so um, so 2021 was um, quite the time, wasn't it? Um, and, and so we, we did it, most of us, and most of us made our way through it. We got here. Um, and frankly, I think we could all use a little end of year cheer as a treat. So for this episode 169, our theme is just nice, nice things, nice, some nice things. Um, so these are some stories from the archaeological record and archaeologists themselves that are heartwarming, nifty, and are just plain pleasant. Um, yeah. So I will start us off with a little story about some Paleolithic art lessons. Take um, me to France. Okay. <laughs> if I must. Uh, so this, oh. this, this comes from Ruffignac Cave in the Dordogne. So Anna's been yeah. there. Anna's I been have. There. You've been in this been cave in specifically? There. Yes, I've been to Rufinac Cave. Um, there's a little train that you sit in. So they don't want visitors just kind of wandering through the caves, even on guided tours, because for several reasons, but because um, also there are cave bear nests in Rufinac that are just sort of on the ground. Um, there are these little what? like divots in the on the ground, the cave bear nests. Cave They're like bear the hol- nests? Yeah. Like when cave bears are extinct, but when they okay. were around, they lived in Rufignac Cave. And I mean, not not solely in Rufignac. They lived in caves, including Rufignac. And they would like dig themselves little hollows to sleep in. And some of those are still there. And I think they didn't want anyone falling into them. Among other reasons, but so yeah, so there's a track that goes through the entire cave. It's actually a kind of a, it's a very sort of touristy and professionally done cave experience. It's one of the more professional ones that you can go to in that area. And so it's this little mechanized wagon with several cars, kind of like a theme park ride. And it just toodles you through the cave and the guy stops at various galleries and shines lights around and points out the paintings and you go, oh, and then you toodle on. Yeah, and at the end, you can buy a postcard. So the Dordogne is like a a real destination for Paleolithic tourism? It Yes, okay. hugely so. Yeah. It's like there. Yeah, you go to all, all the markets and you can buy sort of like, I don't know, T-shirts with cave paintings on them and 
There's lots of themed things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting how, just how much paleo tourism there is actually. I find it really interesting. Yeah. See some caves, take a little canoe ride down the Dordogne, see some castles. Have a nice time. Sounds nice. Um, I would like the record to state that the dog that you hear barking in the background is not mine. For once, it's my neighbor's dog. Uh, we had a visit from the USPS quite recently, oh, and I I'm think sorry. the dog is still recovering. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Um, so in Rifinac Cave, uh, the art of the artifacts and the carbon dating from the artifacts and also the paint. Mm-hmm. Not the paint, not but the, there's the some um, charcoal. There's okay. some burned material that can be dated. Yeah. Um, so that shows that the, the area, though not necessarily way back in the cave, uh, was inhabited around 13,000 years ago. As yeah. if this is the Upper Paleolithic, uh, mm-hmm. which, so upper means. Meaning that it's only Homo sapiens present. Is, is upper meaning it's the end of the Paleolithic? Yeah, the beginning. Yes, of the we start. Sorry, yeah, we. It, so, in European Paleolithic terminology, lower is earlier in time, upper is later in time. So, middle is Neanderthal. I mean, that one's easy then, to figure out. Yeah, yeah, it's in the middle, and then the middle to upper Paleolithic transition is when Neanderthals kind of phase out and Homo sapiens sticks around. And so, by thirteen thousand years ago, we are well into. Um, Homo sapiens just sort of being the only uh, human species around. Okay. Well, so we know who to blame for this very cute story. So (laughs) um, there are finger tracks or flutings down the soft clay along the walls of the cave, um, which are a big part of the art found in the many galleries in the cave system. So a gallery and a cave is a room. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah, these, the, a lot of times cave systems are connected rooms by like little tunnels or yeah. crawl spaces. Yeah. So these aren't, this is not, you know, just despite. It's a Anna's, gallery with art, but it's not an art gallery. Despite Anna's very nice description of a little tour, that's not, this is, <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> no, something that is a natural phenomenon of galleries, yes. not a curatorial phenomenon. Not in this case, no. Yeah. Um, so, in addition to the flutings, there are also depictions of animals, including 158 mammoths, 15 horses, 12 goats, 10 woolly rhinos, five golden rings, uh, four humans and one bear. Uh, so some of the, the finger tracks were clearly made by little fingers. So it, <laughs> so it would have been too small to have been full adults. So just little little fingers and so that those flutings are in lots of shapes lines crisscrosses zigzags and swirls um, yeah and i love that they they went clearly with calipers and just sort of measured all of those little flutings i mean why just, not got to get your data yeah got to get that just data love that they thought to look at that yeah yeah um and so there's a guardian article about this and i'll just read a quick quote from that uh which says one chamber is so rich in flutings by children, it is believed to be an area set aside for them. The four, the marks of four children, estimated to be aged between two and seven, based on likely size of fingers, have been identified there, end quote. Uh, which is just so sweet. It's just so sweet. So they, sweet. Like, 
Uh. Four kids between two and seven. Maybe this was uh, daycare. <laughs> day like, cave. Um, yeah, yeah, a little day cave. Um, or, or maybe this was adults and children making art together. And yeah, so we don't have a sense of, um, to what extent, like, to what extent kids were given responsibility at, at what age in that time. Because if you think this is a gallery that's way back in the cave, so there's no natural light. And so that means that whoever was there would have to have had fire of some sort. And so if you are a small child in the Paleolithic, you, you would have grown up around fire and presumably you would have learned very quickly not to toddle too close to the fire. But that means that either there are adults supervising or like an adult supervising or the older kids are taking care of the younger kids in this space. Cause if there's a, you know, if there's a two-year-old potentially there, you would hope that that two-year-old would not wander into any fire or touch fire, but you don't know. I mean, I don't know. I guess. But they had to have, yeah, they had yeah. to have had fire with them is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't really consider what the presence of fire might imply about response distribution of responsibility um and i don't know if that's something that we can really access but it's just sort of like a that would have been there so Hmm. yeah and so um maybe the sweetest part of this whole story um Mm. so some of the little finger marks um are uh, the little finger finger marks from little fingers that belong to little people to be kids um They're much higher on the cave walls than they would have been able to reach by themselves. So they would have been up on someone's shoulders. So yeah, it's or a, lifted up. Yeah. Mm. So somebody either picked them up or maybe they all stood on each other's shoulders in a trench coat or <laughs> they were doing piggyback. Uh, but either way, it, it does like whatever was happening here, it, it certainly does give the impression that, um, in this space, in this gallery, um, if not elsewhere, children were actively encouraged to make marks on the cave walls and sort of express their creativity and just play. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So sweet. Um, okay. Moving on to, uh, uh, a different species. Cats. We love them. Well, I like my cats. Um, I like and your it turns cats out that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just mean like not all people like all cats and some people don't even really like cats that much and that's okay. But it is almost comforting maybe. It's it's really, it's nice to know that cats have been doing cat stuff just since always. And so I found this um, when, when I put this script together, um, I had things in mind to that they'd be like, oh, this would be nice to talk about. And so there's no, it's, these aren't sort of recently breaking stories necessarily. These are just nice. And so uh, this is one that popped into my head. And so this first bit is a story from about six years ago in which an archaeologist was examining a Roman clay tile that was part of the collections in the Gloucester City Museum in Gloucester in the UK. And so that tile itself dates to around 100 CE at the time that there was a Roman presence in the city. The tile or tegula had been dug up in Gloucester in 1969 and then just sort of had been relegated to museum collections and was only now, or not now, but uh, six years ago, <laughs> being re-examined um, by a researcher. And so 
when they were looking at this tile, the researcher noticed little kitty prints across the clay. Um, so indicating that a cat had uh, 2,000 years ago walked across the clay tile because cats don't care. Um, and so when clay tiles were manufactured uh, in the Roman world, they were left out in the sun to dry, which is probably easier to do sort of in Rome and environs than in Britain. I think the weather's probably similar than it that it is today. So, uh, But, you, you know, these were out in the open and it was wet clay and critters would often scamper by and often those critters were cats. So here's a quote from David Rice, the curator at the Gloucester City Museum, who says, quote, I believe there are more cat paw prints found on ancient Roman tiles in Britain than anywhere else in the Roman Empire, end quote. I don't know whether that just means there were more cats in Britain or cats were particularly naughty in Britain or I don't really know. So there are a few other examples of cats being naughty cats that have been captured in various ways in history. Um, For example, and and we'll have links to these in the show notes, and um, we'll try to remember to put some of these images up on our Instagram because they're just awfully cute. There's a cat print in wet ink on a 15th century manuscript. It's uh, We'll we'll put the image up, but it's beautiful, beautiful handwriting. And then... (laughs) inky cat prints ruining it on both pages. And then a second instance around 1420, a scribe in Deventer in the Netherlands wrote this above a large blank spot in the text he was copying. Quote, here is nothing missing, but a cat urinated on this during a certain night. Cursed be the pesty cat that urinated over this book during the night in Deventer, and because of it, many other cats too. And beware well not to leave open books at night where cats can come. So so one cat peed on it, and then all the other cats were like, well, I gotta pee on it. Yeah, because it's like a like a message board. Yeah, on the it's like, I was here. Yeah. Yeah, sending p-mails. That's what my mom calls them. <laughs> Like telephone posts and stuff. There's a like, there are like a couple spots like in the front yard where gotta gotta read your emails every time the neighbor's dog goes through. She like leaves a little message, and then my dog will be like, like looking out the window. She's like, oh, I gotta go sniff that. <laughs> oh, little dog friends. Oh, yeah. So, just don't leave your books out. Have you it's ever had that problem? My cats are litter trained, so that doesn't. No, but there was the one time that we moved Heidi's box, and there were consequences. But no, not I've on not, your, not had on your manuscripts. Not on my manuscripts. I have had books slightly warped and wobbly because I used to read in the bathtub a lot as a kid. Oh my god, same. Yeah, so the bottom of the pages would all get all sort of wavy because you drop it. Well, I would drop it or just like forget that I was in immersed in water and just sort of like rest the book on my tummy, like the bottom edge of the book, and then like look down and be like, oh, no. <laughs> I I dropped a copy of um, Girl of the Limberlost into the- <laughs> What is that? Bat- my goodness. You don't know the Girl of the Limberlost? It's just a lot of trauma. It's just about like a girl who's like lived up, lived like grown up with trauma. And there's a very specific scene in which she um, is like, I don't know if she runs away or something happens, but she's taken in by by someone who pours hydrogen peroxide over her. And it describes Uh, like the fizzing of of, like these like scratches and things. And so it's like very, very vivid description. Um, Hmm. But I had to read it in gifted class 
and mm. I dropped it in the bathtub and then I like returned it to school because these were like classroom copies and I was like, I don't know. It got, I don't know what happened. It got rained rain I don't. I don't know. <laughs> they, I, I got know. it like this. Yeah. It always it looked like, like this. And they're like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all fantasy. It's just like like dark early 20th century like Americana. Like it's just ah, like. Very much your bag, not mine. Okay. Not my bag of holding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I don't have one. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of things that aren't my bag. Um, yeah, sorry. I, up, I thought I about it. Like, should is, I not give you this one? No, you shouldn't. Have. We're talking about nice things. And here's something that. Um, so well, this, this is this is a cliff. This is a nice, nice cliff content. Um, I, <laughs> so here's a little story about rappelling, rappelling jars down a cliff. I just thought it was nice that they rescued the stuff successfully. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that for them. Um, and so, uh, the site, the, so this site where this happened, um, is a ca- another cave. We're in another cave. Um, somewhere along what's today recognized as the Lebanon Israel border. So the location of the cave itself, the location hasn't been disclosed to the <laughs> public. Um, ooh. What? That reminds me. I wanted. I'm sorry. I wanted to make a correction because in the last episode that we released, when we talked about the Clotilda, I um, mm-hmm. mentioned that I thought it was off the coast of the Carolinas. That's yeah, not correct. Are. We got we got set right by someone on Twitter, so thank you. But uh, it is off the coast near Mobile, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, and that is also a well, not secret, a, a protected location because mm-hmm. uh, they don't want people messing around in there. Anyway, I just want. I forgot to do that up yeah. top. I'm glad I remember to do it now. Yeah. Back to back to the, the cliff cave. Yeah. So um, at this site, unknown, um, mm. about 30 meters above ground level. So that is about um, 29 and a half meters higher than I like to be mm. from ground level. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a cave was used to store pottery vessels, presumably filled with supplies of some sort for uh, a about 2000 years ago. Um, so somewhere around zero CE. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, quoting from a newspaper, the times of Israel quote inside the small cave, three meters by one and a half meters. The team found an array of pottery of all sizes, large cooking vessels, as well as upright wine containers, which were taking up all the floor space. I just thought it was funny weird, how that was worded. Weird way to say that. I'd be like, you can't yeah. even move around in here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Who decorated? I, uh, I yeah, I don't know what's what's going on with that. Um, I mean, it's a storage. What do you want? Yeah, I don't. What do you want times in know. Israel? Yeah. Uh, so these. Large cooking vessels, upright wine containers, sometimes known as amphorae. Um, Taking up all the space. That, that took up all that space. These were very mm-hmm. common pottery forms of the Hellenistic period in the area. Anna, you want to remind people what the Hellenistic period in any given place is? It's when the Greeks came and empired. Okay. Yeah. So that's usually um, the Hellenistic period. In you get most, what you pay for, friend. In most places. Um 
That is in reference to the Greek presence. Usually the Greek presence was introduced by um, not necessarily Alexander the Great himself, but, but his uh, but the army his movement. But, yeah. So so the military campaign and sort of subsequent mm-hmm. um, imperial actions um introduce the Hellenistic period. And so this is where we talk about like periods of stuff in much the same way that people talk about cultures of stuff where it is, um, this is a collection of traits that you see in um, artistic expression or um, technologies of creating like luxury goods. It's usually where you mm-hmm. see stuff and you see that, that, so that's yeah, sort sometimes of what you see it in like a uh, food ways or. In, yeah. So you start typically, you're right. Typically luxury foods. And, and so that's, stuff. that's as these periods were being established by, researchers and by archaeologists um, and kind of coming up with like the canon that's the kind of stuff that they were looking at first and then you see it sort mm-hmm. of um, trickle down into other aspects of life and so yeah so the Hellenistic period is a time when you are at least having indirect contact with Greece so um, why is it called Hellenistic Anna because Hellenic Hellenic yep. the Greeks are the Greeks are Hellens yeah they're Mm-hmm. Hellas, uh, Greece. So that is so that that's what that is. So you start to see um, materials that are used elsewhere. You start to see um, like cultural expressions. So this is something that was like Hellenistic. So you have a sense mm-hmm. of when you have the sense of like when it wasn't made sure. <laughs> because there's sort yeah. of like a, a anytime point. before and after that. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Like I'm saying like. It has to have been at least yeah, after at least the, the after the Alexander. Yeah. yeah. So that that's that's what I was saying. Sure. Um, so this cave location was close to the shoreline. Another place. Another. This is really a hat trick of. It's dark. It's high. It's close to the the water. Like, miss me. <laughs> With all of it. With all of that. Um, So it may have been a storage spot for ocean going travelers or traders. The research team suggests Phoenicians as the ocean going folks. As folks folks who may have used Um, this as a stop off. But but, but there's no known Phoenician settlement anywhere near the cave. So it might be something totally different. Also, would you need one? Like it just. You got a boat. Yeah, like you don't need a a settlement. Like it could just be like a rest stop kind of thing where you've got stuff stored and then Mm -hmm. you have to take into consideration like the possibility of just because just because the Phoenicians were (laughs) like urbanized at like sedentary doesn't mean they weren't incapable of camping. Like so, you know, you'd like don't if this is something that you're just passing through. um, I don't know. Uh, so it could have been a place of refuge for people during any number of political upsets during this period. Uh, so there was a, a lot of conflict happening um, in the, like during Not this period. Not everybody was cool with Alexander's folks. Just sort it of... would have been like the Seleucids at that point. Mm. So okay, Alex- when Alexander died, his empire. Was split, split up among his generals, and it's like really the two the two big guys, and so mm-hmm. there was it was Ptolemy and Seleucus, right? Yeah, and so Ptolemy Ptolemy yeah. got Egypt, 
He sure did. That's how you have the Ptolemaic dynasty, yeah, uh, which is Cleopatra. what Cleopatra was a part of. Um, mm-hmm. And you have like Bernice. Berenice? Berenice, yeah, but it's Bernice. <laughs> like the name is Bernice, yeah. That's yeah. The, uh, but no, Berenice came before Cleopatra. <laughs> um, uh, but just like, like the first, I was just like, that's Bernice. Um, but so that was in the west of the, the empire um, and the east was under the control of Seleucus. And so mm-hmm. that's where you get the Seleucids. And, and so mm-hmm. that's, so depending that's on where this upset would have been coming from. Yeah. So depending on where you're looking during the Hellenistic period, it may be synonymous with Ptolemaic and it may be synonymous with Seleucid. So if Seleucid mm-hmm. art could also be Hellenistic mm-hmm. art, just depending on where you are. Um, and, and so Seleucus was, I think, based in Babylon. Is that? I don't know. Does that? I think that might have been. Because like one yeah. guy and who like some guy my age was like I yep. made an empire all oh, and died. Like, yeah. it's, like, <laughs> oh. it's not sustainable. Ow, um, my liver, or whatever, um, or whatever. Yeah. So this is this is a time where like you're just like out conquering people, and so when you have you have um, th- there's a lot of um, conflict at multiple levels of society. Um, yeah, and so you might ostensibly have a very good reason to hide a bunch of your stuff in a cave. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. if you don't have it to be taken, it won't get taken. Yeah. So yep. my, my wisdom for you. Um, Thank you. So the archaeologists and speleologists. So, so there, was a, there was an archaeologist who did this, and also there was a speleologist on a team, on this team. Okay. Who so had experience navigating caves. So, uh, yeah. So it's like a cu- couple of, couple of dudes. Um, yeah. A couple of like middle aged dudes just like getting out there. Just, yeah. I, which is, I, yeah. Yeah. Imagine your dad basically doing what he does up your porch, but it's down a cliff. Dad is a caver. Like that. Oh well, yeah. Then that yeah, makes sense. He dad, totally could have done this. Isn't that like a such a I my dad thing? Like it is. Yep. He so <laughs> dislikes other people that he will just like He's crawl to the feral. bowels of the earth <laughs> yeah. to like get yeah. away from them. But yeah, he was a he was a big caver guy, um, a spelunker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So these two dudes wrapped every artifact carefully in bubble wrap placed them in padded bags, attached them to ropes, and gently lowered them down the cliff uh, to the team below, which would have been me. That would have been me. Like, yeah, I got look- it. Looking at my feet, waiting until like bumps me in the head. And then I just reach and get in. <laughs> and you cradle it like a baby. Oh. Um, so this meant that they themselves had to climb up and then rappel down the cliff face multiple times during the operation, <laughs> yeah. which is... Mm-mm. Yeah, and actually, um, we use the term repelling, but I, I didn't actually define that term. That is when you've you've got a, a line at a fixed point above where you want to go, and you hold on to that line, and you basically walk backwards down a cliff face, yeah. holding yourself up with that line. Or, you, you know, if you're a SWAT team member well, in a movie, you sort of like hop. the other person, there there are other people holding the like line. Belaying you. Yeah, they're yeah, belaying yeah. you, yeah. So they're letting you down. Yes. Um, mm-hmm big climbers in my family like before it was like trendy 
like mm-hmm. decades before it was trendy. Um, and I wanted to get into rock climbing. I thought it'd be a really great way to confront my, my fear of heights, um, mm-hmm. which lasted about 10 minutes before my dad was like, well, if you're going to cry, I'm just leaving and walked away for with me, like on a rock face oh, in the wild. Well, Cause we didn't have climbing gyms. We just had right rock faces here. Right. And I, I see why that might have diminished your enthusiasm. Uh, but if you ever want to uh, rock climb, I'll take a belaying class so I can belay you. Oh, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> I belonged to a climbing gym for a minute. Never got close to the wall. I like d- did the gym part and just like watched yeah. everyone. I was like, how? That was like my exposure I, uh, therapy was just like watching hotties scale walls. Like this sounds fun. <laughs> that sounds great. I uh, I have done some rock climbing, but the the last time I went, it was an auto belay system, um, and that's a little bit difficult because for me, because I also am quite afraid of heights. Um, but it's a system that doesn't kick in until it feels a lot of pull on the rope, and so you to just get down, you have to just kind of lean out into nothing, and then it catches you. So that was tough for me. Did a trust fall with a robot? I know. Well, I was I don't know that it was a robot. I think it was just like a catch, like a pulley with a catch system. So, yeah, it was a lot of trust on my part and uh, I'm fine. Did I? My the harness really bruised me in some really tender places. So that wasn't great for the next few days, but I had fun. I like rock climbing. Maybe I'll get back into it. Um, well, the artifacts, artifacts, and then, the artifacts yeah. are now um, in the the labs of the Israel Antiquities Authority, where I've been. Um, mm-hmm. And um, at press time, they're still awaiting analysis. Yes. So yes. some have residues on them. So hopefully we can get not only some precise dates of where they're from, um, even if we could maybe also get a sense of what they want stored. Perhaps we could have maybe some dates. precise dates. <laughs> Yay! Oh. Uh, my dad, uh, another quick dad anecdote. Dad cast. Yeah, a little dad cast. So I came into the kitchen the other day while my dad was making his breakfast. Um, this is like dates involved or dates. Yeah, involved? That, that's why I'm okay. telling the story. Okay. Um, and so he was, um, he, he was, he had dates that he got out of the fridge, which like first problem. Um, and so he like would bite them and then like spit them out into his, into his bowl of like gruel. Oh, Cause he doesn't he want making. to get a knife sticky. I guess, but he kept doing it and it was like this like weird thing. Like well, he was feeding a baby bird and because they've still got the pits in them and he um and, and I was like what are you doing and, and he was like well you know I want to sweeten it because you know it's a sweetener you can sweeten it up and all this stuff and like proceeds to tell me about dates and I was like do you Dad? have any idea what part of the world I study and I, where I've been <laughs> I was like Dad I was like you do not need to tell me your human daughter about dates because like I have been in like both date capitals of the world. It's like I lived in California for years. Like my whole date thing festival in Palm Springs was like my whole thing was like dates and like the date palm. And I was like, yeah, you don't need to tell me about dates. And he's like, Phoenix well, just, dactylifera. Yeah, and I was like, also, also I have like 
I have like date paste. I have like multiple forms of dates I like, or like dibs, like the date syrup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. use that. Do you want to use that? Why use are that? you like syrup? Why are you being a squirrel at these dates? But it's just like weird. Maybe he just, look, I don't let him. Let I know him he's dad. got this like eight pound bag of dates in the fridge. And I just oh, okay, well, okay. He's got to get through that. So dates, <sighs> they're, they're nice. <laughs> It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. We're back. Done talking about We're my back. dad. It's, yeah, uh, it's tough being home in the holidays. <laughs> uh, we're back with a, a different old guy. Um, oh, surprise. It's a Rembrandt. Oh, it's not your dad. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I, my dad does like Rembrandt. I, yeah. How's he feel about dates? Uh, he likes them. He's, yeah. he's trying to uh, watch his sugar at the moment, so uh, probably doesn't eat many. But my mom makes date bars every oh. every holiday season, and mm. they are delicious. And uh, they don't last long if they're if they're not in the freezer. They're in my dad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so my father also tried telling me that the dates are going to spoil, and that's why he put them in the fridge. And I'm like, that's not how ah, it works. That's not. They that's, are one thousand percent sugar. Yeah. It doesn't spoil. And I was just like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right. just let him. Let it's just him like, in. I don't, I don't understand. I've, they're fine. They're fine when it's 112 degrees outside. I don't see what the problem is. But that said, I do prefer my prunes chilled. So maybe he just likes a little cool fridge treat. So Rembrandt. Yeah. Who is he? This one's seasonally. Which one was that? Dutch master, 17th century. He painted a lot of self portraits, and there's a, a fun one of him making like a woo face. That's uh, that's my favorite. What might I know? Uh, he one of the well, it, it you wouldn't know it because 
No one's seen it for a while since the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist, but one of his, what? the Night Watch, Rembrandt's The Night Watch was stolen during the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, Boston, the 80s. Wow. All right. Well, that's something oh, okay. that we should look into. Okay. I'm looking at his stuff now and yeah. Okay. So he is part of, okay. He's definitely- The Dutch Masters. He's definitely yeah. one of the guys that made me never want to go to the Netherlands because it looked like it would smell bad. It looks sort of dark and smelly. <laughs> yeah. But then again, that was the Netherlands in the 1630s. So I just, like, I, yeah. It I, probably I, did. I would go to the Netherlands now. Seems nice. I like a canal. So this is a seasonally relevant Rembrandt. Oh. And this was, it was the painting that was hanging on the wall of someone's country home in Rome. So great. Sounds Mm. nice. Um, And experienced what this article calls an accidental trauma where it fell off the wall. No further information, but just fell off the wall. And so whoever was the owner of that villa uh, sent the painting to an art restorer, not realizing what it was, just sort of like this painting's been on you know, in the family for forever. It's been on this wall. It's been on this it wall. Down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it was sent to an art restorer to repair the damage. And that restorer, Antonella Di Francesco, also cleaned it because the varnish that coated it had darkened with time. And so it was just one of those sort of... And that also may be why those Dutch master paintings made you not want to go to them because they're very gloomy unless they have been cleaned in a way that, you know, because Vermeer was a Dutch painter and his paintings are full of light and color. Is that the, is he the guy that Colin the girl with played the pearl earring <laughs> in the movie? Yes. Ah, yes. But he was also a real, <laughs> very talented painter. I don't, Anna, I don't like, doubt I, you. Okay. Antonella Di Francesco cleaned the painting, cleaned up that dark, dull varnish. Turns out the painting was a Rembrandt, one painted around 1632, but thought to have been lost until now. How did he know? How did um, they know? How did they know? Like, were they like cleaning it? And then they're like, oh, like, did did somebody talk about it? Do you just know that it it was was stylistically? So the the fact that Rembrandt had done a painting of the Adoration of the Magi, which is that's what this painting depicted: the three uh-huh. wise men coming to hang out with baby Jesus, give him See, gifts. You say it like that, it makes, uh, it makes it sound weird. Okay, uh, they <laughs> came to celebrate they the birth a star. of their Messiah. Yep, they followed a star. From Those the three kings of Orient are, um, and. It was known because he kept records that Rembrandt had painted an adoration of the Magi, oh, but like, it wasn't. Dear it wasn't. diary, today, today? I, f- I finished my painting of those three old guys that came to give baby Jesus gifts and look at him. Yeah, to give him me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so there are catalogs of Rembrandt's paintings, but then also sort of his records of what he painted. And there are some on his list that aren't on the known list of paintings. And so um, based on the stylistic qualities of the painting and based on um, the opinions of multiple Rembrandt experts who have studied this painting, they have agreed that this is a Rembrandt. Um, and so I, <laughs> I wanted to finish up just this little bit with a slightly dramatic, I, but I understand this feeling that, that 
the art restorer just sort of repairing this painting and then realizing, oh my God, what, oh, this, so, what so I'm this, working on is. So this was restored by Werner Herzog. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, and I want to read you this, this quote from Di Francesca. Quote, During my work, one of the most beautiful things that can happen during a lifetime, the sudden awareness of being in front of a work by a very great author who reveals himself to you, which comes out of its opaque zone and chooses you to be redeemed from the darkness. This is the moment in which we must overcome the vertigo capable of making us sink into that wonderful sense of belonging to history. It is a thrill that has no equal, which vibrates until it drags you into an unstoppable impulse of morbid curiosity. Curiosity. I don't fight it, and I let myself be carried away by the spell. End quote. Okay, so the phrase vibrates until it drags you into an unstoppable impulse of morbid curiosity is probably the best way to describe me having a crush on someone. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this restorer had a crush on Rembrandt. Um, like, this is, I yeah, know that feeling. I d- yeah, it's it is a very never, floored way well, to describe. I wish that I had had it at a Rembrandt and not. Yeah, well, <laughs> regrets. Um, <laughs> and so and so, yeah, attributing like I mean, like like we just said, attributing a Rembrandt is tricky, um, not just because he didn't necessarily always sign his work, but also he was incredibly prolific. He painted up a storm all the time, and he worked in several several different media mediums. So he did etchings and and uh, ink drawing and painting. So there are a lot of attribution disputes, but this one is generally agreed by multiple experts to be the real deal. So, so it's back up on the wall um, in that villa. There was a bit in the article about that. The It's currently still kind of in, uh, <laughs> in cold storage with the art restorer, but the owners do intend to um, loan it to a museum. So it will be on display at some point. People can see Somewhere. it. Somewhere. Okay. Mary Rembrandt to all. Uh, The next one. (laughs) Uh, So here's a long history of mementos of loved ones shown by the archaeological record. Yes, this is more on the poignant side of nice, but but still nice. It's still nice. It's nice. Um, So a 2021 (laughs) study from the University of York looks at problematic objects. At Iron Age sites. So this is not problematic in the sense of being problematic on Twitter. This is in the sense of not quite making sense where they are in the archaeological record. Like their context is just sort of like, oh, what's going on with that? It's like a typewriter. Huh? It's like time traveler kind of stuff. Not really. No. (laughs) So, So these problematic objects are everyday objects that appear in odd places. Um, so there are places that aren't directly connected to how those objects would have been used. So that's like finding a, finding a blender in a garage. If you were like, like, I do provide an example in the next line. I'm talking about like in our lives, like, so sort of like, yeah. Unless you're someone who like works out in their garage and wants a smoothie afterwards, I guess. But yeah, a blender in a garage. That would be. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you walked into an abandoned, like a, an empty home, oh, yeah, and sure, you were trying to sure. learn about someone's life, that's what I'm trying to do here, Anna. Okay. I did, I do know what's in the next line, but it's like that, the sort of like, what's, huh, what's going on? Huh. So 
In these case, in these Iron Age cases, they're objects like querns or grinding stones, <laughs> um, bone spools. Oh, bone I think that's spoons. my favorite plant-based brand. Quern, quern, um, <laughs> bone spoons, and things that would have been used in normal use. Um, so you know, you like domestic stuff, stuff, but, but yeah. found in odd places, like behind the stones in a roundhouse wall. So just like putting stuff in your walls. Yeah. Um, so authors of the study suggest that these were mementos, which were kept by family members to remind them of loved ones, possibly as simply a deceased loved one's possession that the family couldn't bear to throw away. So so in your example, it would be because this was my great grandma's blender. I I can't throw it away, but my grandma has a blender. She just loved her marks. <laughs> those, every time I look at that blender, frozen like, slushy margaritas. No. No, I have I have some stuff like that of my grandma's. Yeah, not, oh yeah, I do too. D- don't, not of your it, grandma's. Not in no way am I implying that my grandmother drank alcohol. Of course, she will haunt me. <laughs> I was I was gonna say something, and then I was just like, well, just, well just I started with joke. the blender thing, and I was just like, what are yeah. blenders for? They're for making margaritas. Like, let's. I I agree with you, but yes, absolutely, your grandma. Touched not a drop. Never. She wouldn't. Never. Ever. Nope. So, uh, quoting from a release in Science Daily, uh, (laughs) Dr. Lindsay Booster from the Department of Archaeology at the University of York said, quote, it is important to recognize the raw emotional power that everyday objects can acquire at certain times and places. Archaeologists have tended to focus on the high material value or the quantity of objects recovered and have interpreted these as deposited for safekeeping or gifts to the gods. My work uses archaeology to open up discussions around death, dying, and bereavement in contemporary society, demonstrating that even the most mundane objects can take on special significance if they become tangible reminders of loved ones no longer physically with us, end quote. Um, yeah. Which, which I think kind of touches on a recurring theme in this show of, of, arch- yeah. of archaeologists forgetting that the past had people in it. Yeah. And, and, and also just like, not just people, but like regular people. No. Yeah. Like, like just people, people like us. Yeah. Like I consider mm-hmm. myself a person and the past had people yes. in it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and so they had interiority. And so when you're, when you, if you're taking like a very like processual like collecting data to like to understand uh, to interpret uh, signatures of human behavior, like it's it, it's unfortunately and, yeah. When you take yeah. that clinical approach, unfortunately, you end up in a position where you are not um, holding as much space for the interiority and and, and subjectivity and yeah. like irrationality of, of yeah. people, and and so it's. It's like doing the so like, saying, oh, this- like, it's not logical to keep this here. It's like, well, what did that person, what meaning did that person attach to that object? Well, and if Was you're it saying logical, it doesn't have to be. And if you're saying that, oh, it must have been like a votive offering to the gods, you're, you're giving them, uh, you're sort of making Pretty the past more. Mouth. Yeah, no, you're making the past more exotic than it might yeah. necessarily be. And, Just and be someone. Who misses their loved one? Yeah, and yeah. and like that's that's and this it's one of those cases where it's like 
helpful to do those little exercise, like the, like the penny exercise and the different things about like ritual objects in contemporary life to, to be like, maybe it was just, just a thing. Maybe it was just a thing yeah. that they had that they're maybe like, I like it. Ritual. Yeah. I just like it like that. Um, like we the had, stone in the cave, the menu port. Are you thinking of that? What are you talking about? Oh, no? we had, we had a, we what? did a story on the show about, uh, an object that was found near Australopithecus stuff. And it was a little stone that was clearly a manuport, like it had been brought into the cave from elsewhere. And it was just like someone liked this rock and brought it with them. I was thinking of um, the story that came out this past year. I think um, there were some like crystals. I think it was in the Kalahari. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. it was just like similar they, story. They similar just had like idea. a nice. Just liked them. Just liked them. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be a thing. Don't make a big thing of it. Like, it's my rocks. Some people have a nice rocks, rocks collection. Yeah. Look at my rocks. They're sparkly. That's, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice. Um, next up, dirt is good for you. Not okay. just this podcast, but uh, dirt, like on the ground. So digging in the dirt stirs up microbes. You knew that. There's lots of, lots of microscopic things living in dirt. Um, and those can get into your system if you breathe them in or accidentally ingest a bit of dirt. If you've, if you ever snacked while gardening, just carrot right out of the ground. Mm. Mm. Good little snack. But in particular, a, uh, a microbe called Mycobacterium vaxae has effects on the human body similar to what Prozac does. It stimulates the production of serotonin, which is a neurochemical that is linked with feelings of happiness and well-being. And so if you're, there have been a number of studies, both kind of qualitative and more, um, more on the microbiome level, but there have been studies that say that uh, gardening does seem to lift people's spirits, whether it's just enjoyment of cultivating. And I'm just imagining my mom pottering around in her her very beloved garden, um, whether that's what makes you happy or if you want to think of a more kind of uh, neurological basis to it, clinical studies do show that Mycobacterium vaxi has promise in treating various mental and emotional conditions um, and even providing better quality of life for cancer patients. So should I just go eat some dirt? Is that my problem? I'm not saying I'm not telling you to go eat dirt, but but you're not not telling me to go eat dirt. I'm not that kind of doctor, but you can eat some dirt if you want, but not. I see you looking over at your plants that that pot that like that's like plant potting soil, right? So you yeah. don't know that that has the right kind of microbes. So you got to wait till spring and uh, make yourself some mud pies. I mean, I'm not going to be depressed then. I mean, I still will be, but like, <laughs> I just, <laughs> who am I kidding? Uh, well, you know, if it's a, a warm day, you could go roll in the dirt with peanut and breathe in some microbes. Sit in the sun for a little bit. That sound nice? That does sound nice. Okay. Well, well yeah. So so everybody, if you can, if you if you wish to, get yourself in some dirt. So you you heard Anna, go eat dirt. That's what Anna said. Anna said, I'm a doctor. And the prescription is, eat some dirt. I'm so mad. <laughs> so we, we this next this next one we talked about. Um, we do in the past, and we have talked about this. I think we talked about it. We talked about it on old, old news. news. Yeah, was it? But yeah, we so bringing it to the main feed because it's 
Um, so we have talked about this PI before, and we've talked about this story on um, a recent issue of old news. Um, but here is a very cool story. This isn't like one of those like human interest, like heartwarming stories where it's actually about like systemic failures yeah, and like individual actions in the face of systemic failures. This is one of those stories that is about very good, um, about archaeology, about researchers and their like research networks activating, activating their networks and putting that network into action towards, um, helping people. So and not, also specifically within the community in which they work. Yeah, not just is, extracting data from a community, but actually working embedding for within the community yeah. and and alongside uh, a community. So extremely cool. This this uh, initiative, um, this this effort was spearheaded by George Manahira, who was the field manager for uh, Penn State's Morambe Archaeological Project Map. Um, map. which we talked about in our mm-hmm. um madagascar episode march madagascarness yeah and and so the map uh aims to reconstruct the impact of human settlement in the uh Velandriake area a marine protected biodiversity hotspot on the southwest <laughs> coast of madagascar um, so as I think we, we either said explicitly or alluded to when we discussed that work, uh, previously, it's an isolated area. So, but, but that also means that there's no substantive medical facilities available. So locals tended to rely on herbal medicine and folk cures. And while there are uses for that, one of them is unfortunately not the novel coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. And so, so there was an, uh, an incoming outbreak. There was, st- it was starting yeah. uh, in this area. And, um, and so Manahira described the outbreak to MAPS director, who is Christina Douglas at Penn State. Mm-hmm. Um, and, who, and, oh, she was raised in Madagascar. Huh. Didn't know that until Yeah. Just I now. learned that research. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and when, there's not a pandemic. Uh, she is she is leading that archaeological project there. And so mm-hmm. Douglas used MAPS research funding to purchase equipment like bleach, masks, gloves, and other cleaning products and PPE. Uh, and these were transported by truck to the area where the MAP team works. And then the team delivered supplies by hand to all the households in the community. And I say delivered by truck. This is an eight hour or six to eight hour trip, like both ways to, to the coast so that. Yeah. So they, they would have bring back these supplies. Yeah. So they would have diverted funds to purchasing them mm-hmm. and then bringing them back and distributing mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as, as well it should, this got attention. Uh, Mm -hmm. because this is an example of what to do. Uh, Yes. Especially, especially when you have, especially when you have funding and when you have funding that is long-term funding and you end up with like a, 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 what is a surfeit? Isn't that what it's called when you've got extra funding? And then Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. you are allowed people who have grants and funding, you are allowed to ask to change it a little bit when yep. you, when you are and that is that is what Douglas did yeah. um she like 
through Penn. Like this was all done through Penn the correct State. channels. Sorry. Yes. Through yeah. Penn State. Um, so um, Douglas is quoted in Nature saying, The intervention was possible because the research team is embedded in the community. I know many anthropologists and other scientists feel uncomfortable with the idea that if you form these kinds of deep attachments, that somehow the work you do is less scientific, less rigorous, or less objective. But having strong community relationships, especially when they are transparent, mutualistic, and reciprocal, improves the quality of the science you do, and they make you ethically more responsible for the outcomes, end quote. Uh, which is true. I <laughs> just, um, yeah. And, and like, I think that that, like, she really nails it with, with that statement because that, um, detachment does not mean objectivity. It does not. No, it means, it means detachment. And neither of those things are necessarily good <laughs> or, um, achievable. Yeah, um, and nor, and, nor do they necessarily really truly serve what archaeology yeah. is about. Uh, yeah, the, and, and sort of yeah, so, humanizing the past. Yeah, yeah. so they're they don't um they're not doing anybody any good. Yeah. And yeah. and so I I am Christina really, Douglas uh modeling the correct the correct yeah. thing to I'm really grateful for her work and I'm really grateful mm-hmm. for the attention that it garners because yes. I think that there are a lot of people that uh, for wh- whatever reason have not thought that this was an option. It never mm. occurred to mm-hmm. them. Uh, mm-hmm. But also like there's only so far you can go with sort of like thinking and someone should have known better if no, literally no one in their sort of academic lineage or their community, like their research community has ever has done has anything done like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I didn't yeah. know it was an option. So I am glad that um, Douglas's work making, is getting making the option attention. Known. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. and, and so that's, that's something that we absolutely love to see. Um, and we're going to take one more. more break. It's more than nice. Yeah, I, I would yeah. like to upgrade this to to nice plus. Now that, oh no, I, well I, that sounds patronizing. I just mean like it's more than nice. It's it's really incredible. Yeah. Um, so we're going to take one more ad, and then when we come back. We're going to talk about a few other things that we love to see, um, <laughs> and we'll just talk about some um, some little artifacts or big artifacts. I don't know some artifacts that make us happy. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back! As Amber said, uh, <laughs> as I was writing this, I texted Amber and said, how about we just, for the last part of this script, just, we just gush about a couple of our favorite artifacts specifically. I don't know. I don't know if I, uh, included this in my assignment to you, Amber, but like just specifically things that make us happy to look at. Like there are tons of artifacts that I love for various reasons because they're incredibly cool or because they mean something in terms of like the human story and yeah. like they, they carry weight in some way. But the, the two that I picked are just they every time I see them, I smile. I just really love them. And so 
that that is what I picked. I don't. I have no idea what you chose. So I guess I'll find that out. But um, the two that I have chosen, and and listeners, these will be on uh, the show notes, and we'll also post a little a little uh, slideshow of them on our Instagram. But the first of mine is the Amber Bear of Slupsk. Little Amber Bear. <laughs> and this is it's not very big it's um maybe about the size of like a an eraser like the you know the pink pearl eraser like that or a little okay. bit smaller um and it is from slupsk poland or what is today slupsk poland and it is a little bear carved from amber and it's just got a silly little face it's very round it's this wonderful kind of burnished glowy luminescent amber and I just, I love it. And it it's around 3,000 years old, and it is thought to be a charm that was worn or carried by a bear hunter. And so, uh, listeners, I encourage you to do a quick little Google of Amber Bear of S-L-U-P-S-K, Slupsk, and uh, just, just have a little smile at that guy. And my second one, there are several in this category of thing, um, which is... Small objects shaped like hedgehogs, but specifically the one that I love the most is, uh, I believe it's in, oh, at least because it's on the Met Museum's website, so I believe it is still an item in the, the Met's collection, but it is a, a hedgehog arabalos, which is a little oil uh, flask used for holding either oil for lamps or uh, often perfumes or sort of oil for um, skincare. And so it's a little, a little clay vessel, a little pot, and it is shaped like the sweetest little hedgehog. He's got droopy ears and little, like picked cute. out little, little spines. And I just, every, I, it just makes me smile. It's so cute. Yeah. And those are, those are the two that I, I mean, there are lots of other ones that I could go into. I, I was, this was hard for me because I, there aren't many things that I find cute um like in the archaeological record um sure there it's just i'm i'm much more i'm much more sort of moved by things so everything i kept thinking about were things that move me and then i was like oh, it's not cute but i did remember it didn't have um, to be cute you could i just wanted things that make you I happy. found things that were cute okay i did the assignment <laughs> um, <laughs> i understood the assignment yeah um so the first one that i want to share is mm-hmm. the um the votives the the votive idols or votive offerings at tel asmar so the tel asmar board so this is um do you have um, a link you can show me yeah i guess um i can google let me okay great uh so they are from um they i mean they were looted from uh what's currently iraq and what well, now Iraq and I was it currently. Um, <laughs> um, and so they're um, very early dynastic. And so this is in uh, the third, the early third millennium BCE. And so they were, um, the idea was that these would be uh, little figurines, little statuettes of people who were worshiping these gods. And so you would put them in front of the, the worried, the idol, you would put them in front of the idol of the God. And so it's, it's this. So the God would always have someone worshiping them. Just yeah, but like no, a, I don't, uh, maybe, maybe, or maybe I, I like the idea of this being like a, um, I am always worshiping you. And, oh, okay. and so and, the, and to the show horde, that here's a little, there's, 
so many of them. And so all yeah. of them, so they're, you know, different gender expressions and they have their, their hands together, like one over, they, they have their hands clasped, like sort of mid, mid chest, not quite mm-hmm. like they're not like, you know, sort of. It's the, not like, prayer hands. Not, not like, not. yeah, not prayer hands emoji. It's just sort of like clasp emoji, um, clasp hands emoji. Um, and so. They're, they're all standing there and their eyes are wide. And, Ooh. and so I, uh, so I learned about them in school and then I, uh, <laughs> the spring break that I spent in Israel. <laughs> I oh went my God, to the, were you in Israel? <laughs> that was such a weird time. But I, I went to the Bible Lands Museum and they had, um, a small, uh, collection of them. And so seeing them all together, and they're different heights. And so it's clearly like different people represented. It's just, yeah. it's just very, um, I, I found it, I, you know, they're, they are cute, which is like sort of patronizing to some of these it, like yeah, religious but expression. They're charming. How about, but how they're, about yeah, they're very, they're very, very, I don't know. I think charming is also patronizing, but, okay. um, delighted but, i don't know. but they're really they're they're really lovely and they're sort of abstract and so you've just got folks with um you've just got folks with with you know curly hair and big eyes and they're just really in awe of their god and mm-hmm. it's just really nice i just really like them and every time i see them i'm just like no um, <laughs> oh, these guys and I really, I really do always love representations of worship in Mesopotamian art because ev- because people put their hands up and it's like OMG, and it's just like the <laughs> the 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 ways in which they telegraph reverence. I really have always liked that. But my second one is the one that is actually very special to me, and I can give a I can provide a, a photo for you to share with okay. the masses. Anna. Thank you. But the first site that I worked at. And I know what this is. <laughs> so the first <laughs> site that I worked at was Muela in the United Arab Emirates, and it's an Iron Age two site. So um, it was occupied between ish around 900 to 600 BCE. And it was a, I mean, it was hopping. And, um, <laughs> and so this part of Arabia was involved in the domestication of dromedary camels and, uh. and sort of the rapid developments in sort of social complexity and trade and all of that. So it was a very, um, very exciting place to work. Um, a place on the rise. Uh, yeah. Muela, a city on the grow until it like <laughs> burned down, but Aww. whatever. But something that was found several years before I worked there, um, was a camel figurine, a like fully intact camel figurine. And there's also a photo of me like with like a, I think part of one. And I'm like holding it up because I'm in the lab with it and I'm like making a little like face with it. Aww. Um, because we're making the same little like camel face. Well- but um it's a really it's really lovely and it's it's sort of a like a like a sandy buff it's the sort of the, the ceramic color no that's the local. type of i mean that's like the wear um oh, but okay. so it's it's a it's a local guy it's also my pen name sandy buff um but it is it's a dromedary with a little mm-hmm. saddle on his one hump on his hump on his one hump um and that is how, which is which is interesting, because because saddle, 
you domesticated. Yeah, exactly. Well done. Yeah. Um, hey. And and so it's just uh, it's just really lovely. And it was one of the first pieces of like evidence that's mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. No, they're from here. <laughs> they did this here. They <laughs> had camels here. And so not only is it just like really wonderful nice to but, look at, yeah. but that, but it was adopted as part of the logo of the Sharjah Archaeological Museum. Sharjah is the emirate oh, nice. that it's in. Yeah. But the best part to me of the whole thing and the thing that makes it truly cute is that when you go to the Sharjah Archaeological Museum, which I recommend you do, um, you, you go like, when you get to the part that is about like the Iron Age, you walk in and there is a conservatively eight foot tall yeah. <laughs> reproduction of it yeah. sort of like on the wall for you to like take photos. I have a photo of of uh, Peter McGee, professor of the show, in front of it, like making like the dumbest face. And it's like, <laughs> like this, it's mine. And like I have, I, I mean, it is like the perfect photo op, especially if you work at Moela. Um, it, you know, camel. it makes sense though, because if they had done it the other way, like here's this four inch camel, and then like <laughs> at the end there's the giant, you would have been like, yeah, okay, camel. <laughs> like, I, th- that's gonna. I think that's a a nice way to wrap up our nice episode. So, thank you, listeners, for sticking with us through this bonkers banana pancakes year, and we hope. That you are staying safe wherever you are, staying warm in this hemisphere, cold in the other one. Um, and I would like you, you to stay comfortable in any hemisphere. Yeah, and yeah, that's a better way to say what I meant. Um, and <laughs> we hope that you enjoyed this episode. And we will see you in the new year uh, after our hiatus. If you miss us before then, you can head to thedirtpod.com where we have all of our back episodes. You can listen to us for literal days if you feel so inclined. And we'll also be, we'll still be active on social media, posting various things. So if you want to find us there on Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And have a very, very safe, healthy, happy new year. And we love you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.